is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love hearing your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And it's time for our On Leadership series, where we hear from coaches, leaders in the military, leaders in business, and leaders in communities across this great country. And this edition is with Bill Koch, whose company Oxbow Carbon has over 1,200 employees and $4 billion in annual revenue. Bill has also led America to a victory in the world's premier sailing competition, the America's Cup, and did it on his first try. But today he brings us some formational leadership stories from his younger days starting at his high school, Culver Academy. At Culver, you know, my first year, I, you know, I got beat up a lot and rassed a lot. Uh, and when I was at Culver, some of the advisors told me that I couldn't get into MIT. <laughs> and then when I got into MIT, I said, well, you know, you're at the bottom of the class. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't think you'll make it. <laughs> and then I found out that if I wanted to do well, uh, mainly to impress my father, as well as mainly to develop my own skills and my own accomplishments. So I just would work very, very hard. Uh, you know, if I had to go to the bathroom, I'd take a, a book with me. <laughs> so I worked really hard. And then I graduated with top honors and then got my doctorate's degree from it. And I've always been seemed to be told that I can't do something. <laughs> you know, being harassed and told I was dumb, an idiot, some other things. So that has become a big challenge for me. I mean, it, it can have two effects. Either you stay a nerd the rest of your life or an idiot the rest of your life, or you uh, take advantage of it. In fact, you know, I probably have a little OCD. <laughs> and I looked at it and said, well, that could either kill me or I could use it to an advantage. So I used it to work very hard. <laughs> and surprisingly, I got more honors than all my brothers put together. <laughs> we just made a couple of them pissed. But I um, wanted to play basketball. I thought the sport was terrific. But in our freshman year, the varsity only won one game. But we as freshmen couldn't play on the varsity in those days. Now they can, then you couldn't. And we were a bunch of nerds. And MIT went out and got this one coach from Methuen High School. It was a northern mill town that was dying in northern Massachusetts. And he had the longest winning record of any high school in the country. So MIT recruited him. And when we became sophomores and were playing on the varsity, we also won only one game. And the uh, coach, you know, took a while to learn out the MIT system, to <laughs> learn what nerds we are <laughs> and what, uh, how clumsy and awkward we were. So I wanted to play more on the varsity, so I went up and went to a summer camp that he had so I could practice all summer. And also that avoided me going out and working on the ranch. <laughs> and I could possibly chase girls, <laughs> even though it was in, in Methuen. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he, he told me he had a, a new plan. 
and he came up with a new play. But he came up with only one play because he said we weren't smart enough to learn more than one. <laughs> These nerds from MIT. And he was also uh, afraid that if, if uh, we all had different plays, we'd get too confused. And then he just drilled us over and over and over in that same play so we could do it in our sleep. So it was you know, habitual. Then he started giving us variations off the play, which was great. But the most powerful thing he did was that he put people in the right spots to minimize their weakness and maximize their strengths. And he defined jobs. You know, and he said, okay, your, your job is to bring up the ball and dribble it, and dribble it up and set up a play. And then your job is to get rebounds and block shots and put up pivots. And then he said to another guy, all right, your job is to go after the best shooter on the other side <laughs> and rough him up a little bit. But he made it very succinct. Well, anyway, in our junior year, we won over half our games. Our senior year, we had the longest winning streak in the country and the least points scored against us. And, and so I looked at that and said, that's a, you know, and I sat on the damn bench, <laughs> but it was terrific. I, I learned it because that was one of the best lessons I made, ever learned at MIT. How important teamwork is and focus. And well, the guy also told us, you guys are winners. You know, if you think you're gonna lose, you will lose. You know, if you think you're going to win, at least you have a 50-50 chance of winning. And I said, that's terrific, you know? And he said, you work all work together. I mean, it's remarkable because not one of us could have even joined, got in any other college. In fact, we probably wouldn't even made intramural teams. <laughs> and, and relying upon your teammates, you know? And, not be a star. I think uh, Ren Arbuck said, any of you guys on the pro team, you can, if you want to be a superstar, any one of you can score, score 30 points a night. But if you do, we're going to lose. And instead, we got to work as a team. And if we win, then we're all heroes. And that's so true. And Red Auerbach is one of my heroes, one of my dad's heroes. My dad was my coach. I was a point guard on an all-state team. And my goodness, learned a lot of these lessons from my coach and a coach named Bobby Knight, who I spent some time with in the most foundational parts of my life. And it was all about these lessons, about knowing your job, being accountable to the job, too. If your job's to rebound and block out that guy, rebound and block out that guy. And your teammates are depending on you. And what lessons learned. And it's amazing, right? This, this industrialist, this businessman, he's talking about college and college sports. And this is why sports is so important for so many people, because where else do we get these lessons taught? Bill Koch's story, his leadership story, and a coach's story, and the impact that man had on those boys who turned into men, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of every kind here, and we love hitting the road and visiting cities across America. We're going to do reports from cities big and small regularly here. And by the way, if you've got a story about your city and your town, well, drop us a note at ouramericannetwork.org. We'll get there. If the story is interesting enough, and my goodness, I'm sure that you've got an interesting story about almost every place you live in this great country. Well, today is the story of a city called New Orleans, and it has over 10 million visitors per year with a local population hovering around 400,000. Our producer, Jesse Edwards, hit the streets. What can be said about a city that people can't stop talking about? The birthplace of jazz. Louis Armstrong territory. Satchmo. I was born, uh, you know, in 1900. And uh, in James Alley, they call it. That's the uh, back of town. That's the, the rear of New Orleans. People of every race, color, religion, gender, age, language, and class call it home. Truly, the great American melting pot. Every kind of food, every kind of booze. Music pours into the air from every street corner. The sweet morning breeze collides with the sweltering humidity of the mid-morning sun, followed by a long, slow burn that stays lit well into the early morning hours and beyond sunrise again. The Big Easy, the Crescent City, the house of the rising sun. We're staying at the Maison Dupuis Hotel in the French Quarter, just two blocks from Bourbon Street, with its wide-open courtyard and pool, full bar and cafe. Old World Charm comes with rooms that start around 130 bucks a night. With a little imagination, it's very easy to convince yourself that you're somewhere in Europe, if you're into that sort of thing. There's a vintage 1969 Montgomery G&P elevator in the lobby here for no extra charge. You don't want to get stuck in this aging beauty, though. About half the size of a normal elevator, you feel the box knocking around the walls as it takes you to your floor. And it's slower than one might think of a modern elevator. Heavy with marble tile and worn brass. A long weekend here won't break the bank. And there's always something to look at. Galatoise dates back to 1905 with a business casual dress code for lunch, no shorts or t-shirts allowed. Most of the waiters are longtime employees who are local to South Louisiana. My name is John Fontenot. I'm from the Bayou. I've been here at Galatoire since 1967. And I left a couple of times to go back to college to try to finish college. But I'm still here because I like people. And whether they like me or not, I still like them, you know. I tell them a few jokes here and there, things like that. But I finished school, but I still rather be a waiter because I like to talk to people, you know. I try to talk to myself, but it don't work. You gotta, and I spoke French before English, born and raised here, so that's why I got an accent. I try, you know. Sometimes you get tired of talking, the accent comes worse. It gets worse. John's been working here as a waiter for over 50 years, and you can hear how much he enjoys it in his voice. Galatoire is, uh, to describe Galatoire, it's like an oasis. I call it an oasis. 
they got to come here. They got to eat, especially Friday. They come every day, but Friday is like they, they, they fight to get in here. And I don't know, you know, other than that, it's, they all meet each other. It's a local restaurant. So they all meet each other and they all have a good time. It's like, uh, like going to kind of like, um, like going to church. You meet all your friends and it's, uh, I guess that's about the best description I, I got. And they, they don't drink too much. They drink a little bit. They eat good. The food is great. And uh, it's always consistent. We have fresh. If we don't have it, it's because it's not fresh. Like soft shell crabs, still playing the piano. That's the only time we eat it. We love crabbing on top and a little touch of menier, you know, things like that. What makes Galatois so good, it's not just the food, but it's the local people. Man, we got a lot of local people come here. If it wouldn't be for local people, we'd have to close up. The pe local people love us. And well, now we like the tourists too and all that, but the local people like, I very seldom wait on tourists. I, yeah. I mostly, uh, local people I wait on. Some of them I don't recognize because they, they grow up so quick, but they know me, you know, because I wait on their dad, their grandpa, grandma. You know, kind of makes you feel good. I feel like I'm related to them, you know? It's hard to describe that, but once you get a relation with them, they come in, I know what, just about what they're gonna eat. Now that's pretty good, when you remember what they're gonna eat, like shrimp remoulade or crab meat maison, or better yet, half and half, a little shrimp, a little crab meat. You know, that kind of appetizer. And I bring them a little bread. And then for the main course, red fish. I tell them all the time, red fish, lemon fish, drum, papano. That's our fish. Saute with crab meat. Papano, you usually grill it. But papano is uh, a special fish. It's a little different from the others. Because the others are more mild fish. But uh, you got to remember these things when you... It's like wine. I try to remember the wine. And it's a little harder. But for the fish and all that, I remember all of that, you know. After working at Galatoire's for so long, John's seen a lot of waiters come and go over the years. Either you got it, or you ain't. The waiters at Galatoire's, they have to be pretty good to be a waiter at Galatoire, I think. I would think so, because the waiters at Galatoire's are kind of like, uh, you got you to gotta be attentive to the customers. You just can't say, give them a hamburger and say, well, we don't serve hamburger here, but I'm just saying, give them a hamburger, eat, that's it. No, no, over here you got to keep keep track of them, keep that table kind of, you know, keep as clean as you can as you go. Ice and water, they want wine, they might not want wine now. They'll, Ten minutes, five minutes later after you walk, yeah, send them over here, I need a bottle of wine. You know, that kind of, you got to be attentive to them all the time. I like to explain it to them better yet. You know, like, crab meat au gratin is in a cream cheese sauce, you know, stuffed eggplant, crab meat shrimp baked, you know. Kind of like, kind of... You just don't, I, I like what I do, it's my job, and I make it like, I'm glad you came. Because if you wouldn't come, I wouldn't be, I'd be out of work, you know? And so I'm always thanking them for coming, you know? That kind of thing. And before I came here, they didn't have ice machine. We had to use the ice, we used to have nine, 900 pounds of ice delivered to us every day. Louisiana is the only place in the United States, other than a small strip of our border with Canada, where French or French Creole is spoken as a first language. Six to ten percent of the population. They speak French here because in 1682, a French explorer claimed Louisiana for France. Eighty years later, France gave Louisiana to Spain. For 40 years, New Orleans was a Spanish city. It burned to the ground twice and was rebuilt before it was ever considered American. 
In 1803, France takes back possession and sells it to the United States just 20 days later in the Louisiana Purchase. Three years after the 19th century began, the Louisiana Delta, a large swampy wilderness abounding in game, was purchased by the United States from France. At first, the Americans sought only the Delta area to allow a free exit from the Mississippi Valley through the port of New Orleans. But the purchase was enlarged to include a vast fertile land reaching from the Gulf of Mexico to the Canadian border as far west as the Rockies, over a million square miles for the price of only $15 million, about four cents an acre. It was the foresight of men like the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, who saw in this great territory the future of America. And on the shores of these great lakes, inland commerce from the North Atlantic to the Gulf. Less than a decade later, in the War of 1812, the United States took on the greatest naval power in the world at the time, Great Britain, in a conflict that would have an immense impact on our young country's future. The final battle of that war was fought here, the Battle of New Orleans. Then Colonel Andrew Jackson led a coalition of pirates, free blacks, and Tennessee volunteers to defeat a British force outside the city. In 1814 we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down to mighty Mississippi. Took a little bacon and we took a little beans Fought the bloody British in the town of New Orleans We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming Wasn't as many as there was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run it Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico Well, we looked down the river and we seen the British come And it must have been a hundred of them beating on the drum Steps so high and they began to sing We stood beside the cotton bales and didn't say a thing We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming But there wasn't as many as it was a while ago Fired once more and they began to run it on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. When we return, the story of New Orleans continues on our American stories. They ran through the bushes where a rabbit couldn't go. They run so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Well, we fired our cannon till the barrel melted down. Then we grabbed an alligator and we fought another round. Filled his head with cannonball and powdered his behind. And when we touched the powder off, the gator lost his mind. We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming. Wasn't as many as it was a while ago. Fired once more and they began to run it. Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, they ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles And they fired through the paper through the rabbit couldn't go This is Our American Stories And we return to the city of New Orleans And a side note here It's my favorite American city my wife and I go there regularly. We broadcast here in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, not very far drive away. Uh, moreover, we were married there. That's how much we love the city. Got married there and loved to go and eat there and listen to music there. Now let's return to Jesse and more of the story. The population of the city doubled in the 1830s with an influx of settlers. By 1840, New Orleans had become the wealthiest and third most populous city in the nation. At 102,000. Early in the Civil War, New Orleans was captured by the Union without a battle in the city itself, but was spared the destruction suffered by many other cities in the South. 
There are a lot of drunk people here in New Orleans. Just be cool, man. There's one place in town that doesn't serve any drinks. Or food, for that matter. It's called Preservation Hall. Not only are food and drinks prohibited, but there's no bathrooms anywhere. If you're planning on seeing the show after pregame drinks, be ready to hold it in for at least an hour, standing in line if you want good seats, and another hour for the show itself. Oh, and I forgot to mention, there's no air conditioning either. If you know how hot and humid it gets in New Orleans during the summer, prepare yourself. This place gets loud, and it gets hot, and it gets packed in tight. Shows are at 5, 6, 8, 9, and 10 p.m. General admission is cash only, $20, seven nights a week. Unless you want to pay extra for big shot seating that gives you the best spot in the house and allows you to skip the line for 35 to 50 bucks. This place was established in 1961 to preserve, perpetuate, and protect traditional New Orleans jazz. This small, intimate room feels like the main vessel from God himself to the south. The band starts playing. Operating as a music venue, a touring band, a record label, and a nonprofit organization, Preservation Hall continues their mission as a cornerstone of New Orleans music and culture. I'm Ben Jaffe, and I'm uh, the bass player, the upright bass, and the tuba player with the band. Ben Jaffe also runs this place. His parents were founding members. I, I look to, to the early jazz pioneers that are like, responsible for this music, people like you know Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong and Freddie Keppard, these musicians that uh, were creating something new at that time, a part of the tradition that we're a part of and come, come out of, and the responsibility we have to keep that tradition alive and relevant and new while still having you know, a foot in the past and you know, kind of looking towards the, the future. Since its opening day in 1961, millions of people have walked through this hall, including presidents, prime ministers, movie stars, and rock idols. Paul Newman and Steve McQueen have filmed scenes at the hall. Tom Waits called it sacred, hallowed ground. Louis Armstrong himself said of Preservation Hall, that's where you'll find all the greats. We so often hear him sing. Let's listen to the master from New Orleans speak. I played in the Symphony Orchestra in 1925 for silent pictures. And we played everything you hear these big orchestras playing. Right down in, in the Vendome Theater in Chicago. And we changed programs twice a week with movies. And we play our overture. Then we go into the jazz quite nicely. That's how I got in there. But still, in all of the experience I had by being there, waiting for myself to come in with the jazz chorus or whatever it is. But we play overture first, and there's the experience, right? There. William Tell was nothing after I was there two weeks. Understand? 
because that was just my horn and everything went with it. And uh, it wasn't much different, the divisions of the, the measures and all that that we did in the funeral marches, three, four times, four, four times, 12, eight times, the same. So everything's been done before, nothing new. But I listen to the best of music, which is just plain music. The worst thing, the public, and especially musicians, they ruin music. Musicians trying to play for them. So they can say, man, you out of this world. And they ain't even paid for to get in the damn concert at all. If you'd have gone and pleased them people that appreciate like wonderful world, that's just a tame tune to your hip, if you call a hip musician. And ask them to play it, you know, you have the tone to play it. Still in all, if you don't blow your brains out, that's what ruined a lot of musicians through the years. And ruined music. Trying to please the other musician that even can't play nothing himself. You bet your life. I like lost my lip trying to please these cats standing there with their arms folded. What? What can you play? There's 10 billion trumpet players. Name one that you think's a creator. And if you name one, I'll kiss your pocketbook. <laughs> Jazz and New Orleans go hand in hand. People love it down here. One infamous citizen of the city like jazz, a little too much. He's known as the Axeman of New Orleans. As the killer's name implies, the victims were usually attacked with an axe. He killed six and injured twelve, but the Axeman was never caught or identified. His crime spree stopped as mysteriously as it had started. On March 13th of 1919, a letter from the Axeman was published in newspapers saying that he would kill again, but would spare the occupants of any place where a jazz band was playing. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, of course, on Tuesday next, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, so much the better for your people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it up on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get my axe. That night, all of New Orleans' dance halls were filled to capacity with jazz parties at hundreds of houses around town. The horror then came to an abrupt end, and no one would ever learn the identity of the Axeman. The story of New Orleans continues when we return here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. If you ever get down, 
You might steer clear on St. Joseph's Day. The graveyard bones make a rattling sound. The dead get up and start walking around. believe me but I'll tell you it's true and you would too if it happens to you I spent the night on the graveyard there and what I saw gave me a terrible scare rattling bone rattling bone creeping around from behind the is Our American Stories, and we conclude with our adventure into the deep streets of New Orleans with our producer, Jesse. The last 48 hours in this town have been a whimsical blur, mostly thanks to the frozen margaritas on every street corner and staying up to 4 a.m. listening to world-class jazz. One of the more popular bars in the French Quarter is Pat O'Brien's. During Prohibition, it was known as Mr. O'Brien's, and the password, Storm's Bruin, was required to gain entrance to the establishment. It began operation as a legal liquor joint in December of 1933, and it's where the cocktail known as the Hurricane was born. Charlie Bateman is VP of Operations at O'Brien's. Well, the Hurricane was created mainly because there was a shortage of liquor. You know, uh, and uh, for like every case of scotch you had to buy, you had to buy like five cases of rum. And not a lot of people drank rum back in those days. So long story short, they, they were stockpiling the rum. They had no idea what to do with it. So one day they, uh, uh, George Oster sat down with uh, Charlie Cantrell and they started playing around with a different drink. Uh, a liquor salesman had to bring in some what they call red passion fruit mix. So, and they created the, this drink. It was a red drink with red passion fruit mix. The next thing was, is you know, how are we going to promote it? So at first they put it in a small glass. That didn't work out too well. So they had these hurricane lamps that they used to put the, the candles in. And so they put the drink in there. It was a big, tall, red drink. And they, they gave it, they passed it out to a lot of locals that came in here. And it just snowballed from there. And whenever the service menus walk in, they all want to know what the drink was. And it's one of the biggest uh, souvenir items of New Orleans. So uh, over the years, we've sold millions and millions of those. While there's more to New Orleans than drinking, it'd be a shame not to introduce you to Chris McMillan. He's a famous New Orleans bartender and co-founder of the Museum of the American Cocktail. This line of work runs in his family. He's a fourth-generation bartender, and in 2016, he opened Revel in Midtown. Uh, I want to say just a couple of things about uh, the preparation of the drink before I get started. Uh, One is the uh, traditional silver cup. Uh, Metal acts as a conductor glass acts as an insulator. So the cooling of a drink is the physics of heat transfer. When you have the metal, it conducts the heat in the spirit through the metal to the exterior of the glass and causes condensation and actually creates 
a frost on the exterior of the cup, making it colder uh, and therefore the drink more pleasant to more pleasant to drink. The second thing is the actual use of mint, and you'll see this with the mojito uh, also. Bartenders believe that by well, we've all seen that commercial of the uh, bartender in the room uh, muddling the men in the mojito with the, uh, the band playing and the, the party going on to the beat of the rhythm of his muddling. And bartenders believe that by showing you uh, their muddling technique, it shows their skill as a bartender. But uh, one of the things that you have to learn about men is that it's very delicate. And it doesn't require that you pulverize it. You can take one leaf and just barely rub it and release the beautiful fragrance and essence of the oil in the leaf. However, if you take an equal leaf and crush it and pulverize it, it will release bitter uh, flavors, uh, which you often see in the mojito. This is chlorophyll in the plant, and you release that vegetable matter, so you're not trying to crush the mint. Our bartender here then recites a routine of prose as he crafts our cocktail. It's called Ode to the Mint Julep, and it was written by Joshua Soul Smith. Then comes the zenith of man's pleasure. Then comes the julep, the mint julep. Who has not tasted one, has lived in vain. The honey of Hymenus brought no such solace to the soul. The nectar of the gods is tame beside it. It is the very dream of drinks, the vision of sweet quaffings. The bourbon and the mint are lovers in the same land they live and on the same food that they fostered. The mint dips its infant leaf into the same stream that makes the bourbon what it is. The corn grows the level lands through which the small streams meander. By the brookside, the mint grows. As little wavelets pass, they glide up to kiss the feet of the growing mint. It bends to salute them. Gracious and kind it is, living only for the sake of others. The crushing of it, only makes its sweetness more apparent, like a woman's heart, and gives its sweetest aroma when bruised. Among the first to greet the spring, it comes. Beside the curling brook that makes music in the pastures, it lives and thrives. When the bluegrass begins to shoot its gentle sprays towards the sun, it comes, and its sweetest soul drinks at the crystal brook. It is virgin then, but soon it must be married to old bourbon, his great heart, his warmth of temperament, and that affinity which no one understands demand the wedding. How should it be? Take from the cold spring some water pure as angels are, and mix it with sugar till it seems like oil. Then take a glass and crush your mint within it with a spoon. Crush it around the borders of the glass and leave no place untouched. Then throw the mint away. It is a sacrifice. Fill with cracked ice the glass, Pour in the quantity of bourbon which you want. It trickles slowly through the ice. Let it have time to cool. Then pour your sugared water over. No spoon is needed. No stirring allowed. Then place sprigs of mint around the brim so that the one who drinks may find a taste and an odor at one draft. When it is made, sip it slowly. August suns are shining. The breath of the south wind is upon you. It's fragrant, cold, and sweet. It is seductive. No maiden's kiss is tender or more refreshing. No maiden's touch could be more passionate. Sip it and dream. You cannot dream amiss. Sip it and dream. 
it is a dream itself. No other land gives such sweet solace for your cares. No other liquor soothes you so in melancholy days. Sip it and say, there is no solace for the soul, no tonic for the body, like old bourbon whiskey. Needless to say, I had my fill of bourbon that night. But somehow, I managed to avoid the dreaded hangover. A walk in the early morning sunlight around Jackson Square is a great way to get some pictures of the local architecture without getting a bunch of tourists in the shot, and it's a great chance at some fresh air. It's actually the best time to walk the French Quarter, in my opinion. Bourbon Street is quiet, and the only other people out are going to work. Beware. Once you come here, part of you will never leave. As beautiful as she is haunting, and just as salty as she is sweet, this town has an undeniable magnetism that will draw you near forever. Some of it's the history, some the legend, the food, the drinks, that party atmosphere that doesn't quite sound like anywhere else. There's also an indiscernible quality about New Orleans that's perhaps best left to the poets. This is a love poem for New Orleans, written and performed by Nina Erickson. She's a floozy you fall in love with against your better judgment. She's fast and unfaithful, but you just don't care because she's so beautiful and so charming. And when you're in her arms, she talks you into doing things you'd never do anywhere else. You know she's not true and she doesn't love you, but her voice is jazz. And her blood is zydeco, and when she sings the blues, you give in and hand over to her anything she asks. Her heart's in the quarter, though she gives no quarter herself. She's ruthless, and she'll take you for everything you're worth. In fact, you think nothing of it. When she tells you to give her $10 for that $3 drink she just served you in a plastic cup, so you can take it with you out into her streets where you trip over the cobblestones as you make your way back to the haunted room you've rented for the week. It must be the voodoo that leaves you so spellbound that you stand transfixed in the square in front of the cathedral and under the stony gaze of Jackson, wishing you could stay in her wicked arms just a few more nights. No, she's no good for you, but she stole your heart while she emptied your pockets. So you make up your mind, it's no big deal. You'll let the Big Easy keep your money and your good sense and call it a fair trade. Because while your wallet is empty and your pride is laid low, your soul is as full as a steaming cup of coffee, served up at 4 a.m. at the Café du Monde where you sit trying to sober up just enough to remember how to find your way back to that rented room with its ghost of a beautiful dark-skinned girl that gave you such a fright your first few nights in town until you got used to her leaning over your bed to tuck you in tight each time you laid down. For Our American Stories in New Orleans, I'm Jesse Edwards.
This is Our American Stories. And just decades following the signing of the U.S. Constitution in 1787, trailblazers called mountain men headed west. These adventurers gave rise to new American heroes and new enemies, too. But these struggles and battles will forge the American character and will transform a colony into a country. Today's story is told to us by one of America's best Western storytellers, Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. By 1821, 24 U.S. states have been established. The population is something around 9.6 million. The country's border expands to the Missouri River, and beyond that border lies a vast western territory of brutal wilderness shrouded in myth. Conquering it requires extraordinary men. One of the greatest of these is Jedediah Smith. Is the first to come overland into California. He's the first known person to cross the Sierra Nevada. The first man to recognize the significance of the South Pass. Smith's discoveries beyond the Missouri surpassed those of even Lewis and Clark. Here's Jim Hardy, director of the Fur Trade Research Center. Without men like Jedediah Smith, and particularly his trails, we wouldn't have had an Oregon Trail. We wouldn't have had a gold rush uh, because the, the, the routes to California and Oregon wouldn't have been there yet. Smith embodies the character of America, frontier grit, rugged individualism, survival. Jedediah Strong Smith is born the fourth of 12 children on January 6, 1799 in South Central New York State to parents who descend from the Puritan settlers of Massachusetts. Following the expanding frontier, the family moves westward in 1810 to Erie, Pennsylvania, and two years later, Jedediah, now 13 years old, goes to work as a clerk on a freighter that sails the waters of Lake Erie. The young teenager becomes familiar with not only shipping and trading, but also the adventurous life of those who live farther to the West. Then in 1814, a family friend gives Jedediah a copy of the Journals of Lewis and Clark, and he devours the book. Here's astronaut Buzz Aldrin. Lewis and Clark want to see what's on the other side. Given a mountain, we want to climb it. We hold those venturers of the past uh, in great admiration. Then in the spring of 1822, the 23-year-old is off on his own to the edge of Western civilization in St. Louis, Missouri. The city is the center of America's fastest growing industry, the fur trade. Here's Barton Barber, author of Jedediah Smith, no ordinary mountain man. Jedediah's primary reason for going to St. Louis and then into the far west as a beaver hunter was motivated by his ambition, a word that he uses often, his ambition to make good at a time when the nation was in terrible economic condition after the panic of 1819 and closures of banks and uh, rural uh, mortgage failures. So he's driven 
by the urge to make good. That means he wants to make money. A skillful writer, Smith details his life in his journal. I intend to follow my strong inclination to visit this unexplored country and unfold those hidden resources of wealth and bring to light those wonders which I readily imagine a country so extensive might contain. Jedediah Smith becomes a regular reader of the Missouri Gazette and Public Advertiser, the town's leading newspaper. One day an advertisement on page three catches his eye. Wednesday morning, February 13th, 1822. To enterprising young men, the subscriber wishes to engage 100 men to ascend the river Missouri to its source, there to be employed for one, two, or three years. For particulars, inquire of Major Andrew Henry near the lead mines or the subscriber at St. Louis. Signed by one General William H. Ashley. It was almost as if his life was, was lined up for that particular moment to be able to read that article. Next. Smith gets to William Ashley Name? as fast as he can. Thomas Mitchell. Next. What do you do? A trapper. Name? Jedediah Smith. Welcome, Mr. Smith. The Ashley Henry Fur Company. Yeah, yeah, thanks, men. Let's go. It is from these beaver trapping expeditions that the new mountain man emerges. But there's something about Smith's character that sets him apart from these other young adventurers. Smith is a devout Christian, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't chase women. He is long on courage and clear thinking in a tight spot. His Bible and gun are his closest companions. As Phil Anschutz writes of Smith in Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, Smith was hardly a stereotypical mountain man, yet few mountain men earn greater respect from their peers. Here's fur trade historian Rex Norman and Jim Hardy. Uh, there was something about his nature that seemed to exude to people confidence, uh, trustworthiness, and boldness. He had read Lewis and Clark's journals. Lewis and Clark takes this expedition all the way out to the Pacific Ocean and back over a period of little more than two and a half years. And you read that and, and you can get caught up in the romance. You can get caught up in the, in the wonder of, of what's out there. And I think Jed was uh, suffering from a little wanderlust. I want to be the first to view a country on which the eyes of a white man have never gazed and to follow the course of rivers that run through a new land. And when we return, more on the life of Jedediah Smith here on Our American Stories.
And we return to the life of Jedediah Smith. This is Our American Stories. In that last segment, you heard about three words that described him. Confidence, trustworthiness, and boldness. And now let's pick up where we left off with the 23-year-old Jedediah Smith joining the beaver trapping expedition of 1822. The Ashley Henry Expedition ascends the Missouri River in two keel boats during the spring of 1822. For 22 weeks, the men travel nearly 1,400 miles, covering some 5 to 20 miles a day. When spring arrives in 1823, the 24-year-old Jedediah Smith has spent his first winter trapping beaver at the Muscle Shell River in central Montana. But the pelts come with a price. The local Indians have stolen almost all of the mountain men's horses. Oh, yeah, we can't afford to lose any more horses. Because of this, Andrew Henry looked for someone to carry a message to William Ashley, asking him to buy horses from the Arikara Indians at their village on the Missouri River. I'll go. It'd be dangerous traveling all by yourself. Here's historian Mike Moore. To me, Jedediah is the epitome of a man's man in the West. He's mentally and physically tough. He's brave. He doesn't say, I cannot do that. He just says, let's go. They soon reach the Arikara Indian village near present-day Moe Bridge, South Dakota. Ashley approaches the village cautiously with some 40 men to negotiate with Chief Grey Eyes, who met Lewis and Clark in 1806 and earned a reputation as an iron-willed negotiator. We need horses, but many blankets, many other things to trade for. Smith is left in command of the shore party, positioned on the sandbar. (laughs) Ashley manages to conclude a deal, trading kettles, blankets, knives, and supplies of all kinds for horses. All seems fine. The Rickra deliver the horses to the sandbar, but before Ashley's men can swim them to the opposite bank of the Missouri, a violent storm sweeps down upon them. The shore party now has to remain with the horses on the sandbar overnight. This gives the Rickra plenty of time to think about the situation. There are six or seven hundred Rickra warriors and a mere 40 Ashley men down below on the sandbar. Why not annihilate them and capture the keelboats with all the cargo and weapons aboard? At the break of day, on June 2nd, 1823, Smith and the others on the sandbar hear the crack of rifles and lead balls begin ripping into their position. Horses start toppling over and men dive behind them for cover. Within minutes, most of the horses and several of the men are dead. The Arikaras unleashed a fusillade of hundreds of flintlock guns. Arikara archers were also launching clouds of arrows as best they could. With this massed firepower, these guys on the exposed sandbar were in deep, deep trouble. By the twos and threes, men dive into the river and are swept downstream. Smith makes it into the river unscathed and later is hauled aboard a keelboat. So as Jed's leaving, he's looking at a beach that's strewn with the bodies of, of a dozen or so of his comrades um, and all these dead horses they had just traded for, and there's nothing that he can do. 
my thoughts I kept to myself, knowing that a few words from me would discourage my men. All together, 13 men are killed at the battle site, and two others later die of their wounds. Jed, you speak the word. The Arikara evidently suffer few casualties. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The battle is one of the deadliest in the history of the Western fur trade. Amen. Shall be avenged. Survivors of the attack head downstream and reach Colonel Henry Leavenworth at Fort Atkinson, about 15 miles north at present-day Omaha, Nebraska. Leavenworth organizes what one fur trader called the Missouri Legion, some 350 soldiers, another 75 or 80 mountain men and trappers, and then Sioux warriors who saw a great opportunity here to have Uncle Sam help destroy their inveterate enemies, the Arikara. On August 9th, 1823, six weeks after the Arikara battle, the mountain men are organized into two companies, and Jedediah Smith is made captain of one of the companies. When the force reaches the Arikara villages, the Lakota Sioux waste no time and immediately begin pouring fire into the Arikaras without any plan of attack. Here's historian of the American Indian, Jimmy Chastine. They didn't wait on Leavenworth and his troops. They came to fight and they fought. They went right up to the defenses of the Arikara and they got right into the thick of the action. Jedediah Smith and Colonel Leavenworth's forces have no choice but to join in. Fifty Arikara are dead, and the Sioux managed to kill Chief Grey Eyes. The Missouri Legion suffers no losses. The Arikara signal they want to parlay. The Arikara subsequently agreed to all of Colonel Leavenworth's demands. And Leavenworth calls off further attack. The Lakota Sioux are outraged. The Lakota people thought it was stupid and disgusting that the whites didn't carry through this fight against the Arikaras. That boosted the Lakota's contempt for white soldiers and their power. Jedediah Smith and the other mountain men are also outraged, knowing it is simply an Arikara ploy to gain time. The mountain men are right. That night, the Arikara slip out of their village and disappear. Smith heads west and spends the next three years leading trapping parties through the Rocky Mountains. It's the beginning of expeditions that will earn him five historic firsts. The first of these is pioneering a trail through South Pass. Together with some Crow Indians, friend James Kleiman and Tom Fitzpatrick, Smith establishes a trail through a 20 mile wide valley, the one opening through the Rockies. It is the door to Oregon and California. The route will be taken by pioneers on the Oregon Trail, the Stagecoach, the Pony Express, and the Union Pacific Railroad. That fall, Jed and his crew blazed through grizzly country in present-day South Dakota. 
A grizzly bear is the most deadly frontier beast, up to 10 feet tall and 1,000 pounds, with claws six inches long. Grizzlies don't fear anything on Earth, including man. The grizzly was the largest, most powerful animal in North America at the time. It had nothing above it in the food chain. It looked at everything as a potential source of food stood up and towered over you. You could pump bullets into the thing and it would still come at you. It was literally a monster. Suddenly they hear this thrashing in the underbrush nearby. Grizzly! Sure enough, a grizzly bear bursts out of the thickets. Men, get those horses back! Smashes into the line of march. And Jed is in the front and he runs up into this clearing. And I think that Jed running drew that bear to him. Bear attacks. The bear immediately grabbed him in a vicious and deadly bear hug and seized Jedediah's head in his jaws. And as he pulls his head away, pulls his jaws off, he just rips the scalp. And when we come back, we continue with the story of Jedediah Smith. And by the way, so many of our stories about the American West can be heard at OurAmericanNetwork.org. So many of them we picked out of Phil Anschutz's two terrific books, Out Where the West Begins, Volume 1 and 2. Those hours include The Life of Samuel Colt, Adolph Coors, Levi Strauss, J.P. Morgan, and John D. Rockefeller. And without this cast of characters, from businessmen to, well, mountain men... The American West wouldn't have been the American West. And when we continue, more of the story of Jedediah Smith here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Jedediah Smith. We want to find out what happens to him after he's been viciously attacked by a grizzly bear. There lay Jedediah in a bloody heap. His men are panic-stricken. There's no surgeons there. They don't know what the heck to do, and nobody wants to lay their hands on this guy's mangled face. You gonna sit around and watch me bleed to death? Captain, uh, what's best to do? Give me a blanket. Somebody get some water. And the only one who's not panicking is Jedediah Smith. And he's saying, all right, guys, you need to work on me here. Jedediah's friend, James Kleiman, describes the incredible ordeal in his journal. Get some water. 
Captain said, send one or two men for water. And if you have a needle and thread, get it out and sew up my wounds around my head. Climbing, you got a needle and thread, you gotta get it out now. I got no thread. I got some fine sinew. It'll have to do. You're gonna have to work on me right here. I got a pair of scissors and cut off his hair and then began my first job of dressing wounds. Upon examination, the bear had taken nearly all his head in its capacious mouth and torn his face from his left eye to his right ear and laid the skull bear near the crown of his head. So it up tight, you sew it up tight, Carmen. Yes, I don't Captain. need to bleed to death right here. One of his ears was torn from his head out to the outer rim. After stitching all the other wounds in the best way I was capable, the ear was last. Then I put in my needle, stitching it through and through, and over and over, laying the parts together as nice as I could. I got it. Miraculously, the stitching job is successful, although Smith is left with a frightful scar. He grows his hair long and styles it with a distinct comb over to hide the vivid red scar, missing eyebrow and displaced ear. It becomes his signature look. Just 10 days after the attack, Jed Smith is back on his horse and heads west to high beaver country 600 miles away. Smith's trapping skills earn him the record for beaver pelts taken in one season. He arrives at the annual rendezvous with 668 pelts, which sell for $6 a piece, earning him some $4,000. That's more than $400,000 in today's money. Smith is so successful as a mountain man that in 1826, at 27 years of age, and five years of experience already as a trapper, he organizes his own fur trading company and brings in David Jackson and William Sublette as partners. For the next five years, Smith's company dominates the American fur trade. The 1826 Mountain Man Rendezvous is held at the Great Salt Lake in Utah. When it concludes, Smith assembles a party of 20 men, having talked them in to an audacious plan to blaze a trail to the Mexican province of California. Now, the map behind the Great Salt Lake is a blank. The Indians are unable to help. They can't answer Smith's questions about this unmapped region. All anyone knows is somewhere, maybe a thousand miles to the west, is this place called California. Smith and party leave the Great Salt Lake in August 1826, and he becomes the first to travel the length and breadth of the Great Basin. Jedediah's greatest accomplishment was probably getting across the Great Basin virtually on foot. And they basically walked across the deserts of Nevada. When he got ready to go to California, there were guys ready to follow him uh, into lands that nobody had been to before. They didn't know what they would find, but they were willing to follow Jedediah Smith. They travel southwest, and by November, 
After a little more than three months on the trail, Smith and his party reached Mission San Gabriel, some 10 miles east of the small Pueblo of Los Angeles. Today, a city of four and a half million people, Los Angeles then had but 1,500 residents. Jed Smith and his men are the first Americans to cross overland to California. Most of the route of Smith's expedition is followed today by Interstate 15. Smith and his men spend the winter at a cap on the Stanislaus River in the San Joaquin Valley. When spring arrives, Smith attempts another first. He and two of his trappers head for the 1827 Mount Man Rendezvous at Bear Lake on the border of Utah and Idaho, but to do so, they have to cross the Sierra Nevada mountains. Despite encountering snowfields up to eight feet deep, the men struggle across the mountains in eight days. Theirs is the first recorded crossing of the rugged mountain range. And ironically for Americans, the direction of travel in this first recorded crossing of the Sierra Nevada is from west to east. When Smith and the two others arrive at the rendezvous early in July 1827, cheers erupt and a small cannon is fired in salute. The mountain man had given up Smith and his party for dead. No one believed that he could still be alive. No one could believe that he did what he did. The, the thing that stands out to me when I think about Jed Smith and his accomplishments is, is the really remarkable amount of terrain that he covered, the extraordinary uh, trips that he made through territory which was uncharted, unmapped, unknown, with such ease that he traveled across the landscape. After spending a week at the rendezvous, the 28-year-old Smith heads for California again. This time he has a party of 19 mountain men with him. Traveling by the route of the previous year, Smith arrives at the Mojave Indian Settlement on the Colorado River in August of 1827. Smith has met the tribe before and traded with them and doesn't expect any trouble. His medicine was considered strong amongst a lot of the native nations that had dealt with him. They understood that there were special things about him that put him over and above other men. And, and they respected that. They brought him pumpkins and squash. He got good information. He got guides that took him across the desert, showed him water holes, got him all the way over to the Mission San Gabriel. But something was different on the second trip. Men set up camp for the night and prepare for departure in the morning. At daybreak, Smith and the mountain men must first cross the Colorado River. Smith leaves 10 of his men on the eastern shore, while he and eight others transport themselves and part of their supplies on small rafts across the Colorado. Just as they are nearing the California shore, several hundred Mojave warriors attack the mountain men left behind. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens to Jedediah Smith, also to those men left behind, 
This is Our American Stories. More after these commercial messages. This is Our American Story, and now the final installment of Jedediah Smith's journey across the West and back. Let's pick up where we last left off. Just as they are nearing the California shore, several hundred Mojave warriors attack the mountain men left behind. They look back on the bank, and all of a sudden, these these eight or ten guys that are with the party that are still there are just surrounded by Mojaves. This incredible shout goes up. They're looking back at their party, and they're just being annihilated. They're being clubbed and beaten, and spears, knives, tomahawks, right before their eyes. They're being killed. Here's Smith looking through the willows, seeing his men being slaughtered. Total surprise, total shock. Uh, can only imagine what might have been going through his head at that particular time. I thought it most prudent to go to the bank of the river and select the spot on which we might sell our lives at the dearest rate. They fall back into this little grove of trees. They begin to ford up. They use their knives to chop down uh, some smaller uh, branches and make them like spears. They tie their knives under the end of the spears and they pile up some logs to, to make sort of a fort there. Some of the men asked if I thought we would be able to defend ourselves. I told them I thought we would, but that was not my opinion. Thus poorly prepared, we waited the approach of our unmerciful enemies. On one side, the river prevented them from approaching us, but in every other direction, the Indians were closing in upon us. All right, my two best shots. I need you to take your aim and fire, but do not fire until you know you're going to make a kill. As the Mojaves approach, Jed has his two best marksmen shoot and kill two of the Mojaves. That was just enough to make the Mojaves think twice about attacking. All right, hold your fire. We were released from the apprehension of immediate death. At nightfall, Smith and the survivors, many of them wounded, slip westward into the desert. He then blazes a trail through the mountains and forests of Northern California to the Pacific coast, and then up the coast into Oregon. Smith's trailblazing takes him through the coast redwoods, and the mountain men gaze upon the tallest trees on earth, some of them nearly 400 feet high. 
The area today is Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park. Once in Oregon, now mid-July 1828, Smith leads his men up the coast to the Umpqua River and then up the river a short distance to a large village of Kilowatset Indians, part of the Umpqua tribe. The Kilowatset seem friendly and gladly trade with the mountain men. Good. Great. While his men trade with the Indians, the Kilowatset guide helps Smith scout the area ahead for the best route to Fort Vancouver. Upon returning to the village, though, Smith senses something's wrong. He stealthily creeps closer and sees the Kilowatset have killed, scalped, and mutilated his men. The Kilowatsets used axes, knives, and whatever came to hand to murder these Americans as quickly as they possibly could. Well, Smith could do nothing but creep back up the trail and begin what became a three-week, 200-mile journey north to Fort Vancouver, the great Hudson Bay Company post located on the north bank of the Columbia River in today's state of Washington. He's the first individual known to have gone from California to the Columbia River. So he explored the west coast of the United States. Smith remains in the Oregon country, trading and trapping until March 1829. The seven years of incomprehensibly hard living has taken a toll on both his physical and spiritual being. Here's Jedediah Smith scholar James Hall. He does write a letter home, the famous letter on Christmas Eve 1829, and he really pours his heart out, and he really lets it all go about how much he misses his spiritual life and how much he wants people to pray for him out here. And here's a chance for him to, to let loose and get personal, knowing that this letter is going to be read by his family. In August 1827, ten men who were in company with me lost their lives by the Indians on the Colorado River. In July 1828, 15 men with me lost their lives by the Umpqua Indians. Many others have lost their lives in different parts of the country. We have many dangers to face and many difficulties to encounter. With respect to my spiritual welfare, I durst hardly speak. I find myself one of the most ungrateful, unthankful creatures imaginable. I have need of your prayers. During his stay, Smith gains an intimate knowledge of the Oregon country and notes there are almost no British settled there. Earlier, Smith saw that Mexican control of California is tenuous and the population of Mexicans is no more than seven or 8,000. Moreover, almost none of them have settled north of San Francisco Bay or in the interior valleys. Both the Oregon country and California are ripe for the taking. Smith feels it's his duty as an American to make his observations known to officials in Washington, in particular, Secretary of War John Eaton. 
Smith sends a long, detailed letter to Secretary Eaton that reveals not only Smith's writing skills and command of the language, but also his comprehensive understanding of geopolitical strategy. Smith also sends precise descriptions of his trailblazing and copies of his maps. In effect, Smith becomes an explorer and strategist for the U.S. government. Yet Smith is a buckskin-clad mountain man, and he continues to lead trapping parties until August 1830, when he retires to St. Louis. Smith has made and saved enough money to live comfortably as a gentleman. At just 31 years of age, his most experienced man in the West. Time to call it quits. He made uh, a vast amount of money uh, in a very short period of time, and by the time he was 31 years old, uh, he had probably the equivalent of a half million dollars in today's money, uh, which was a fantastic amount uh, for then, and it's pretty—it's no chump change for today. However, Smith is intrigued by the large profits St. Louis traders are making on the Santa Fe Trail. Early in 1831, Smith leads a trade caravan he has organized from St. Louis en route to Santa Fe. By late May, the caravan has moved into the dreaded Cimarron Desert. For three days, the traders push on and no water. There's no water here. I'm gonna just go look for some. You guys stay here with the men. I'll be back. Smith scouts far out of the wagons. Several miles out, he comes upon a water hole. Too late, he realizes that lying in wait at the water hole is a hunting party of some 20 Comanche, including a chief. They're waiting for buffalo, but Smith will do just fine. Smith knows that a bold approach is now his only hope, and he rides directly up to the Comanche, tries to communicate with them in the sign language of the plains. But they ignore his peaceful gestures and begin to circle to his rear. Suddenly, Smith's nervous horse wheels about, exposing Smith's back to the Comanche. Instantly, Comanche fire and a musket ball rips into Smith. He gasps at the impact, but is able to turn his horse about and lets his rifle roar. Smith's single shot drills the Comanche chief in the chest, and he drops to the ground dead. Smith kills two more Comanche with his pistols before other Comanches close in. They thrust their long lances and repeatedly stab Smith. At just 32 years of age, Jedediah Smith's legendary luck finally runs out. The Comanche regard Smith as such a great warrior. They do not mutilate and dismember his body, but give him the same funeral rites they give their chief. Jed Smith has passed from life into history at a waterhole in the Cimarron Desert. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. 
And again, thanks to Roger McGrath. He's our resident story on the American West, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And he taught at Pepperdine and UCLA and so many other Southern California universities, a legend as a teacher and storyteller. And so many of our stories are plucked from Out Where the West Begins by Phil Anschutz, Volumes 1 and 2, Adolph Coors, Levi Strauss, J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, and Kit Carson, just some of our favorites, and the life of Samuel Colt is a stemwinder. The Jedediah Smith story, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 